Welcome to episode 177 of the IOPN, the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. I am Laurel Brannock, and this episode is going to be something slightly different. It's new. It's not a it's not an experiment because I've been wanting to do this for for some time, but. As you get into the recording, which I'll unleash upon you shortly, you'll see where I'm going with this. But over the course of the history of this podcast, ultimately, the primary focus has been about talking to scientists, researchers, doing research on the topic that we discuss, i.e. they're the originators or people who have continued the body of knowledge in that particular field, whether it's in sport and exercise nutrition or related topics in sport and exercise science, exercise metabolism, etc. Now, more recently, I have started doing podcasts, which we call In the Trenches. And the purpose there is to have conversations with practitioners at the very applied end of the practice of sport and exercise nutrition. And there's a great deal to be learned from talking to experienced practitioners who, yes, have all the appropriate scientific training and knowledge and so on, but also have that added wealth of, of knowledge of actually applying this stuff into practice. And for those of you that have you know, listen to those podcasts. For those of you that are practitioners yourself, you'll fully appreciate that there is a big gap between science and practice, which is the entire mission, of course, of, of what we do at the IOPN is to bridge that gap. And with this podcast in particular as, uh, as one of the tools. Now, the I guess the, the sort of the elephant in the room, though, is, is if we're talking about science, if we're talking about practice, we still need to be talking about food, and in particular, food that lands on the plate. And the the engineer, the technician, the the artist behind that process is the chef. So I've decided to interview a number of chefs or performance chefs who work in a variety of areas that are relevant to sport and exercise nutrition, private chefs, as well as team performance chefs. And uh, the reason why I'm doing that is because Yes, ordinary folk will prepare food for themselves, but a lot of elite athletes, particularly football players, as we will discuss in today's episode, will actually have the means and the desire to hire in private chefs, for example, and or will be exposed to team performance chefs, which may or may not be the same experience. And in fact, it is not uncommon, as will be discussed today for there to be an interaction, not always a positive interaction, can be a clash that may exist between the various community of experts, practitioners that exist in 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 our client's life, in the in a football player's life, for example, in this situation, where they may have a, a team chef, performance chef, a team nutritionist, as well as a personal private nutritionist and a personal private chef. So I felt it, there would be a lot of value in having a conversation about performance nutrition, particularly through the lens of the performance chef, a private chef and a team chef. So you're going you're gonna to get that over the coming months. So today, this recording, which actually was recorded a little while ago, I had some technical issues with the recording, but I've managed to resurrect the recording. And, and thank goodness I did, because it was a gem of a chat 
with Chef Rachel Muse. She'll tell you all about herself in the opening segment of the recording. But as you'll learn, Rachel is a very experienced chef, private chef, working in many different environments from hotel kitchens to exclusive private chef situations traveling around the world and, of course, working with uh, football players. Now, before you listen to that conversation, I just want to remind you that, you know, unlike perhaps how we might look at science published research and so on, particularly from the chef perspective, there's going to be many different ways of approaching these things. So it is incredibly unique to each chef, I imagine. And I think you'll find this particularly interesting. But of course, there will be more than one way to swing a cat in this situation, which is why I'm bringing you more more chefs. So anyway, before you listen to that, go to our website at www.theiopn.com where you can learn all about all of our other podcasts with scientists, researchers, practitioners, and upcoming performance chefs in the sport and exercise nutrition field. You can learn about our specialist software for performance nutritionists working with individuals or in group coaching sessions online or in team settings. That is SEMPRO and some of the other things that we do, most notably, of course, is our advanced professional diploma in sports nutrition. The latest version has just been released uh, and will open up this November 2022. So go learn about our world-renowned program in sport and exercise nutrition at www.theiopn.com. So anyway, that's enough of me talking. I hope you enjoy this conversation I had with Chef Rachel Muse. Enjoy. So welcome to, I'm going to struggle with this one because this is the first time that I'm approaching this particular topic. So normally what I would say here is welcome back to the IOPM We Do Science podcast, the Institute Performance Nutrition's podcast, which this which this is, of course, and I am, of course, Lauren Bannock. I haven't changed my name or my voice or anything. Now, in recent past, I started to introduce a new sort of subsection of my, my podcast where we traditionally have been focusing purely on science after all this is called we do science and that's really important and we you know we keep banging on about how important it is to understand the science the theory behind everything that we're doing in sport and exercise nutrition it's it's extremely important and more recently i've introduced this sub sub sort of series if you like called in the trenches where what we're doing is is going away from the classroom away from the laboratory but actually meeting with or talking with practitioners working in the trenches of day-to-day practice. Now, today we've got something similar, and this time now we are going in the kitchen. And in the kitchen today, I have the first of many chefs, performance chefs. We'll get into the titles in a minute, but most important is the guests themselves. And today I have Chef Rachel Muse. Rachel, how are you? I'm very, very well. How are you? I'm good. I mean, this is a new this is a new experience for both of us. Yep. So this will be interesting. But that, something tells me that you're going to keep us informed and entertained, Rachel. So, like I like I made it clear right right from my beginning piece there in the kitchen in the trenches we do science and so on. These are all things that I feel are important areas within this podcast. But this particular area that I want to get in today, I guess we could we could say is is not just bridging the gap between science and practice. Now we're taking this from bridging the gap between science and practice and ultimately what ends up on the plate, so to speak. And in previous podcasts, we've talked about how important this, this final part of that 
that journey is. And for example, with Professor Michael Gleason, who you know well, of course, I know you feature in his book, for example, makes a point of it. But so many of my experts, whether they're scientists or or practitioners, all acknowledge the importance of this area. But this is an area that I feel has not really been addressed, at least not from my experience. So that's why I wanted to bring you on board where chefs are involved at really the most important end of this, I feel, for reasons I hope to explore, whether that's a chef in the home kitchen, a chef in the club kitchen, or a private chef scenario, bringing the food to a player's home, for example. So anyway, look, I don't want to keep blabbing on this end, Rachel. Why don't you start this this chat off today with me by giving us uh, just a little bit of an overview of, of who you are and what you do? Okay. Well, very great introduction. Thank you very much. I shall aim to be like the BBC, which and their remit is to inform, educate and entertain or entertain those three things. The entertaining might be... Well, we'll make it work. Don't worry. (laughs) We'll make it work. Yeah, I'm juggling. If you can see me now, if you can see me now, I'm juggling. No, I'm not. So my name is Rachel Muse. I have been a chef for... I always used to tell people it was 12 years, and then I realised, oh, yeah, it can't still be 12 years. It's something like 25 years now, considerably more than 12 years. I didn't start off as a chef. I started off studying for a degree in mathematics, which I got. It was a rather unpleasant experience for everyone involved. But you can all it, imagine. <laughs> well, you see, I, I could I could talk forever about mathematics. It's lovely, but for me, it ticks a lot of boxes. But it didn't tick the ultimate box of being fun. And I thought to myself, if I'm going to be earning my living, then. It needs to be something that I don't even know how to say it, that, that I feel connected to. And I give it energy and it gives me energy, positive energy. Like it's a it's a symbiotic relationship, that it's not just me giving something to something and it being dry and dead. I need something that is that is a connection, is a balance, is reciprocal. I give it joy. It gives me joy. That's what I need. And that's what that's why I chose to retrain to become a chef, because food had always given me joy. And I was brought up in the 70s when there wasn't really packaged food. There was no Uber Eats. There was no Deliveroo. There was no real takeaways, actually. Well, not in the world that I grew up in. And so if you wanted to eat, then you cooked. It was basically that simple. And so I grew up in and out of the kitchen. Also, I grew up in a world where children didn't have things done for them. I mean, at a birthday party, you maybe, I don't know, you went for you went to the swimming pool with with like five of your mates. That was it. You know, that was a big deal. There wasn't like a Saturday jumping in the balls thing and then a sliding down a thing thing and then a face painting thing. That wasn't a Saturday in the 70s as a child, which I'm imagining you had a sort of similar experience. Yeah, I'm a 70s child. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So, you know, you're in the you're in the house, you're bored. What are you going to do? You're going to rummage around to see what's happening. You're going to end up in the kitchen. Someone's put a potato peeler in your hand and says, well, if you're here, don't make a noise, peel this. So you do. And then you think, oh, what's that? And then you slowly slowly get sucked into it and then you know then you're making cheese on toast and people are giving you a round of applause and then you think well, this is great and that's so I always had an interest in cooking it wasn't something that was ever separate from me being me it was always you know if you want to eat then cook 
you know, and you do eat three times a day. So that's cooking three times a day, isn't it? Anyway, so I graduated with my shiny new degree in mathematics and thought, hmm, yeah, I don't really think this is going to work for me. And so I retrained and became a chef. And I would like to put it on record. I became a chef before it was cool to become a chef. (laughs) I became a chef because I liked food and I liked the process of feeding people. I didn't think I'm an actual certified feeder, but I like that, you know, the symbiotic thing. It gives you pleasure, but, you know, the pleasure is reciprocated. I like that. So, yes, I retrained, became a chef. And then I quite quickly realised that just being, just having that first level of qualification was only really like the the entry level. I needed to have another qualification on top of that. So I did another level and that was to become a, a patisserie chef, a, a pastry chef, which I can, and that was two years, day release, whilst working in a busy full-time job as a chef, having one day off, well, two days off, one day to go to college and the other day to do all your homework from college. This was before the internet. I don't know if that means anything to your listeners. It did exist, folks, our younger younger listeners. There there was a time. (laughs) There was a time when we used things called books and they lived in a place called a library. And every single time I went to college, I had a 70-litre rucksack and that was full of books because no one had written a book to cover everything we were covering in college. There was like in one big book that was, I don't know, 150 pages. There might be two paragraphs in that, which were gold. The rest of it is just, you know, la, 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 la. And another book, you know, so you're just taking this. Like, and that's how it was when I started out being a private chef as well. I would take four or five big books with me and go and work on a boat, go and work in the Caribbean, go and work this with it. And then the internet came and I was like, wow, that just completely exploded my mind because then there were recipes on the internet. But anyway, that's not the story. That's not what we want to tell you. So then I started working in big hotels in London, which is, oh yeah, and I should say that if ever you think to yourself, if you wake up one day and you think to yourself, what should I do with my life? Should I get a degree in mathematics or shall I do a pastry chef course? then do the degree in mathematics. It's a lot easier. It's so much easier. Doing the patisserie stuff with such high levels of stress because it's not just about thinking, oh, no, 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 no. No, you've got to make it. You've got to make it in a very short amount of time and it's got to be perfect. Otherwise, your Austrian professor, who was the UK's first professor of patisserie, looks at it with disdain, cuts a tiny slice off it, eats a mouthful of it, then takes your great big tray of it, walks over to the bin, and just very gently tips it into the bin. And you're like, okay, that's quite a clear signal. Mm. So yeah, that's how we were, that's how we were taught. But the good side is I do understand all of food science. I do understand how why this doesn't work, why that doesn't work, how you need to adjust this with that, this is that, or you know, some of it, quite frankly. I might have forgotten, but I know exactly what the problem is and I know exactly what to Google to remind myself that this is that and that is this. It's not just like, oh, well, it's broken. It's like, no, 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 no. This is to do with the yeast being that, isn't it, rather than this. And then, yeah, might have to Google and sort that out. But it was an extremely good education. I want to keep diving into your pathway. So I just want to, because there's all sorts of things you you said there that I don't want to forget about and to, to mention, one of which, of course, was, you mentioned the, the 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 fact that cooking food can give joy 
to the people that you give it to and to yourself. You know, that's actually part of the reason why I got into this myself. My my mother was French, hence my name. I grew up in a French household between France and the UK, mainly in the UK, hence my accent. And I went uh, to a rather traditional English boarding school from the age of six. Let's get the therapist around here, but let's not go there. I'm sorry. But I do remember those experiences of being wholly unimpressed with the food either at school or when I would go and be with friends, it would be very British dishes, go back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, even if you went to restaurants and so on, it was hardly something that people weren't coming to London specifically, for example, where I was living at the time to eat. You know, it's more recently that, that, that well, in the last 20 years in particular, from what I can remember, at least that food became uh, of higher quality in London, 20, 30 years, I'm like you, I think I'm losing track of time. But this idea of joy. Now, when when we're learning nutrition science at school in, in the university, you'll see these charts, diagrams, bespoke textbooks, not, you know, we don't have to carry rucksacks. We're quite lucky. We have well-designed, well-thought-out textbooks. And they'll talk about food is energy, food is sources of protein, food helps the immune system and so on. But you 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 pretty much never see the word joy. <laughs> There are some aspects of that, and there are classes. I remember doing classes on cultural nutrition, how important it is from a cultural perspective. But that's missing, particularly in sport and exercise nutrition. They didn't talk about that stuff at all. It's very much about macronutrients and energy and protein and so on. And and the idea of, like I started this conversation, of actually thinking about what this stuff looks like on a plate and does it does it give joy? Yes, I know we're supposed to be fueling and refueling the athlete and supporting their training adaptations and so on, but they've got to actually want to eat this food, which is a, a, a real big issue. Having spent quite some time being in a situation where I'm watching athletes not wanting to eat certain foods because of that very problem and, and maybe not having had an upbringing where they actually had amazing food put in front of them. Therefore, they tend to, to be more comfortable with really basic children's food you said children earlier I think that's kind of what it is it's the way that we're approaching them but obviously we're trying to do something here which is where we use two words in particular which would be health and performance of course so there is a certain there is a certain thing there but but just to just to come back to that because I know from my own upbringing just my own personal upbringing just how important food the preparation of food is my mother was an quintessential French woman, food was everything. It was also important about bringing people to the table, the social aspects of it. There's just so much to it, but the joy of cooking and preparing food as well, which is interesting because in the topic we're going to get into, when you're being a chef, you are providing food as a service to someone. There, It's not necessarily something that they're engaging with the actual food preparation process themselves and all the pleasure and the learning that can come from that. So you have already shown that th th there's a great deal to to becoming a chef already. And we've you've only just started on that path, by the way, of telling us from the easy mathematics degree to the very difficult and challenging process. I've I've done a few bits here and there at various chef schools, only short-term training stuff. And what you've just said, yeah, I, I found it frightening. I've, I can only imagine with my own students or my fellow teachers, researchers, professors, and so on, if we treated our students that way by dumping their coursework into the dustbin, we'd possibly come back with some legal issues with the student and their parents or whatever. But, but for you, 
you went through that experience and you kept going, obviously, you know, it was, you, you said it was stressful, but you kept going. What was the main ambition for you to go, actually, no, I'm going to use my maths degree and become a rocket scientist or a teacher or, or whatever, but you kept going with the learning how to be a chef. And I imagine you're going to tell us that that wasn't a process of you got your qualification. Maybe you did patisserie, you know, like people do CPD. I got another certificate on the wall. It's a, you have to evolve a lot, don't you, in your work? Yes. Yes. And that's really, you know, what was there a big plan? No, I'm not a planner. Even with a business, I'm not. I am for, I plan my week. I plan, you know, I plan the things I can see. I plan the thing, those things. But I'm fortunate in that when I started the business, which was by kind of by accident, I didn't need to borrow any money from anybody. So I didn't need to do a business plan. And there is still no formal business plan. There's been no plan in my career. If I'd have had a plan, then I think I would have missed out on a huge amount of opportunity. because. I was always presented with a lot of opportunity. Whenever I got to a crossroads, or not even a crossroads, whenever something like naturally had run its course, opportunities would be open to me. People would be asking me to do things. And because I didn't have a business plan or a career plan, I would look at each thing and with the knowledge and understanding I had of myself and of the world at that time, I would make a decision about which thing to choose. And I did make some mistakes, of course, everyone does, but that was okay. And I didn't feel that, oh, well, now I've blown it because it, it was it was literally, it wasn't following a map. It wasn't following a route. I, do, I still do not have a final destination in my mind. I am making good decisions, hopefully, from the information I have and the opportunities that present themselves to me. So. There wasn't a plan. The only real plan, well, I did, as part of training to be a chef, and that would have been in the 90s, it was kind of expected that if you were any good, you have to go into the Michelin system and blah, 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 blah. I tried that. It was very much not for me. I was in an environment where I was bullied for being female and was basically told to do the hours that you need to do you're going to have to do recreational drugs, but not for recreation, to keep you going. And I thought, well, hello, my body is way more important than this. I'm not being particularly judgmental about people who choose to do whatever they choose to their bodies for whatever reason they choose to do. But I'm not going to do something like that just so I can do my job. That seems spectacularly wrong to me so I was like you know what that is just okay there must be environments there must be Michelin environments which are not like that but that just so revolted me so repulsed me scared me that I was like no okay no and then I started looking for a way to be creative to learn to be in good environments which weren't that and so I kind of out of that found the way of being a private chef, because mm. this was also in the 90s when being a private chef was not a thing. It was not a thing. And then I didn't know anything when I started. I mean, I knew how to cook. And I had had this a couple of four or five years working in big hotels. 
and restaurants. So I knew how to, so I, whatever the expression is, cut my whatever's or uh, my, uh, my stripes. I didn't know it all, but I knew like the system of cooking in big environments and just dealing with craziness. Because when you work in a big London hotel, there is craziness. And it's not drug-fueled craziness. It is just... Well, Rachel, we've, we, I think a lot of people probably have seen these crazy, you know, Hell's Kitchen and all these sorts of things. And actually, they're not entirely unrealistic, are they, for what lots of people, you know, go into? Is that right? Or I don't have a television. Oh, okay. Uh, Good for you. <laughs> one of the reasons I don't have a television is because a lot of... There's a lot of food on telly. Yeah. And it's done for show. It's done for telly. It's done to it's done to no, it's supposed to inform, educate, and entertain. It's done to entertain. A lot of it is just so wrong, so misleading, such a load of nonsense. People who can't cook but look pretty, flounce about, spill cream into their cleavage, batter their eyelids, and think they're special. We know who we're talking about, I think. Yes, that person. And that's great. You know, they've made a they've made a business, a career out of being absolutely clueless, but being apparently eye candy. And then people try those recipes, it don't, they don't work, and then they're all upset with themselves. They think they can't cook. That recipe was never supposed to work. That recipe was just there to sell a cookbook. All nonsense. It's all smoke and mirrors. Nonsense. Which, you know, if you're a member of uh, the police and you watch a police drama, you're like, that's nonsense, that's nonsense. Yeah. You don't do it like that. Or anything, anything you know about, and you see it on the telly, you're like, that is nonsense. That's not, that is dangerously not how it is. So, and food is all of that. Anyway, so I know people who have been involved with the Hell's Kitchen setup. That's the Gordon Ramsay thing where he makes everyone Yeah, cross. no, I'm, I'm merely saying that, that people have this idea of what they think being a chef is mostly people who can't cook themselves anyway or they have some degree of intrigue in in what is a what is a popular thing i mean there are many different types of shows re, you know related to craziness in a kitchen all the way to you know bake offs and this that and the other and and what i mean by that it's it's just you know for one reason or another it's it's entertaining it's popular it's cheap to make as well it's cheap to make yeah i'm sure i'm sure that is but where i'm leaning with this is that that despite the popularity of that, there is a relatively small number of people who actually take that through to to being themselves engaged enough to be actually spending time in the kitchen, either to feed themselves, their family, their their friends, or whatever. And of course, obviously, we're talking here, particularly in the environment of sport and exercise, nutrition athletes, and so on, particularly in football, is almost none of them are engaged at that process. And you and you also talk about us being from the 70s and so on. Back then, more people, I think, may have engaged in the kitchen, possibly because they weren't playing computer games, being on TV or whatever. So the kitchen had an aspect of, of fun and and learning to it. God, I sound like an old fogey now, but it, I mean, it is true. It is true. I think less happens in the kitchen, but either which way we're more disengaged with cooking, preparing food, and so on. And of course, we become more and more dependent on seeing recipes or, or of course, takeaway foods or going to restaurants. I mean, the emergence of fully prepared foods has exploded in the last few decades, hasn't it? Which I guess segues us into really what we need to be talking about here, which is the emergence of the private chef. And you were one of the first ones, at least within the realms of this conversation, you certainly there 
certainly there uh, uh, when all this sort of thing started to to happen before it was a known thing in the same way. Yeah, I, before it was a thing. Yeah. So anyway, you had your you flirted a bit with with going down sort of mainstream chef pathways, big hotels, potentially the whole Michelin thing. And there's a certain direction that that goes, rightly or wrongly. We certainly have performance chefs that have been down that path, and it might suit some, particularly those in a team setting. But very specifically, this conversation is with you as a private chef, because I have some other performance chefs who are going to come and talk on who are primarily working as team chefs or club chefs in different sports and environments. There are various reasons I wanted to talk to you about this, because as a nutritionist myself, I interact occasionally, more than occasionally with chefs. I mean, it's an essential part of my work in team sport uh, as one of the closest relationships I have with anyone is with the chef. But also in my private practice, periodically, I have players who will work with a private chef. Sometimes that chef, like yourself, will integrate with other people like the club nutritionist or a nutritionist sometimes it goes the other way though i'm i'm discovering that the client has a chef who's got their own ideas and and maybe mixes their skill sets in the kitchen with their skill sets in picking up misinformation and combining the two so they're not quite getting their boundaries right either in that process which can be an interesting issue that i want to talk to with you because Although we didn't talk about it yet in the preamble to this that I'll record after this conversation, I will point out the sorts of areas that you've worked, which I'd like to bring you to now. So you're not just a chef, though. You're a private chef. And nowadays, not always, because you've worked in some some pretty impressive different environments as a private chef. Maybe you could just quickly talk about that a transition from the path that wasn't so enjoyable to you to clearly what has attracted intrigued you to this day for what is it how many a, a, a while decades now decades yeah. yeah decades yes becoming a private chef mm. i my first few employers because i was an employee at that time were people who just not just people who wanted fresh healthy food mm. and for whatever reason they weren't interested not interested they were well you know, the facts of the matter were they were happy to pay someone to be in their kitchen cooking fresh, healthy food for them and their family. That's always the crux of the commercial arrangement, the agreement. And then from then it, and, and I've worked for various people, business people, a lot of people in the music world, which is interesting because music to me, I think like quite a lot of chefs, Chefs are, are interesting because some people who are not chefs, who aren't really foodies, music is very important to them. Music is mood. Music is da 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 da. da. It really means something to them. Their first dance at their wedding is like really important. And I'm like, yeah, music gives me energy or doesn't give me energy. I listen to it. I don't listen to it. The music, you know, I listen to the radio. I don't own music because why would I? I don't even know the names of people. I couldn't go and ask, or I didn't even know, like on my phone, my phone has no music on it because that's of no interest. It's not of no interest. more unique than I imagined, Rachel. (laughs) (laughs) But music, I have the radio on all the time. If there's a song I don't like, I don't listen to it. There's a song I do like, I listen to it. It gives me energy. Uh, That's when I'm driving, I listen to music or spoken word because it 
it gives me energy or it keeps my mind going whilst I'm driving up and down the M6, which I spend a lot of time doing. Anyway, you know, a smell, a smell, and that's that lights up my entire brain, like my entire brain, or just seeing something that I know smells. So I can see a rose. And I have taught myself to stop and smell the roses. Like stop, But for me, it's also rosemary bushes from the south of France, lavender bushes, da 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 I'll see one. I can smell it. My brain tells me what I'm smelling before, I see, before I'm in smelling distance. So I'll go over, I'll smell the rose or I'll rub the, go up to the, the, raspberry, the rosemary or the lavender, lavender bush, rub it between my fingers, smell my fingers. And that is like, for I think for a quote-unquote normal person, that's like their favourite tune. But to me, that smell is, I can't, I, you know, it makes me emotional just, just, just thinking about a rose, just thinking about the rosemary bush in my garden, just thinking about smelling that, it makes me all happy and excited. But these olfactory things, I mean, that's entirely relevant, though, to what we're trying to talk about here, which is, you know, why, why would we even bother having a private chef? Okay, we just get something from the freezer section, stick it in a microwave. I think even our My challenging of, of, of clients can manage that, but they don't because there's something missing. They may not even realize it, right? But, yeah. but what? But they may not have been brought up a certain way. They may not have had a certain level of training, education or whatever, but, but what they can see, what they can smell, and ultimately what they can taste, that combination of factors, it just breaks boundaries, doesn't it? I mean, do, you know, you, you, people go out of their way to go to restaurants on a special treat out or not everyone, obviously, but they people do. But the whole next level is this thing of, of you as a private chef coming mm-hmm. in. Now, yeah. I understand you've done this for business people, people in the performing arts, you know, and people will go, oh, well, you know, they've got loads of money. They can do whatever, you know. So, I mean, it's within the realms of affordability or or whatever, whatever. Okay. But specifically athletes. So you work with loads of for example, football players, you know, which I guess is the segue from thinking about film stars and music players and whatnot. We think mm-hmm. of football players, at least in the Britain, Europe sort of, of of setup. Just I'm interested to know how you went from being private chef to private performance chef. How did that segue occur? That segue, well, that was very interesting. I was working, I'd been living in France for quite a while. Uh, and that job came to an end and I came back to the UK and almost felt I had my tail between my legs because I'd been so fabulous and so international (laughs) and I'd run out of road on where I was because I was working for a family and they were getting divorced and it was not pretty very not pretty and then I started working for a French family in London and that was I'll just say highly educational and leave it at that. I did more miles in that job than in any other any other job, and I have done a lot of miles, a lot. And they then they started to get divorced as well, the French family. And I was like, maybe, maybe I'm cursed. Uh, I'm not, but I was just like odd. And at that point, somebody rang me up and said, I've got an amazing job for you, which to me, when I was part of that world, that would happen just like all the time, like without being arrogant, that would happen all the time. Well, it's um, word of mouth, literally, isn't it? It's yeah. the word eyes and mouth in your case. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Because yeah. I think, well, that's, that's, a, that's, a, whole other, that's a whole other story. We won't get into that right now. But the I've got a lovely job for you, Rachel, was cooking for a player 
who was playing for Southampton. Mm. And my base in the UK is in Salisbury. So with a player, with a client based in Southampton, I could actually go back to my own bed at night and not have to have my passport in my back pocket, which I did have to for the other, well, for most of my life, I'd have my passport in my back pocket and just like be constantly ready to go, you know, not even have milk in the fridge in my own house because like that would be pointless, wouldn't it? That's just going to go off before you get a chance to make it into coffee. It's going to be good. Anyway, so I started cooking and I knew... I knew nothing about football. That's that's not exactly true. I knew very, very little about football. And probably most of what I knew about football is when football players were on the front page of the newspapers because they'd done something which they probably weren't particularly proud of. And so that's kind of what I thought footballers were, which is very ignorant. And that's not what I think now. That's the only experience I had had of knowing footballers' names was because yeah, it was of just a client. It, it was a client. Yes. Mm. So I so I went and so I thought, well, you know, football, mm, what's that gonna be like? And so I went and met him and I realized that he was an extremely I don't know how to put it, like like proper, like polite, very well brought up. I was gonna say very well educated. He wasn't very well educated. He wasn't unintelligent. It's just he hadn't spent very much time in school. The two things are completely different. Mm. He would ask me lots of questions. He once asked me, was there a war before the Germans? It's like, okay, we can break that down. And it's not like, oh, okay, I'm going to laugh at you because that's a bad way to phrase a question. It's like, no, was there a war before the Germans? Well, yes, I think when you say the Germans, you mean the the war that was some kind of called the Second World War. And okay, well, what's and you'd start talking to him, he'd ask very sensible follow-up questions. Yeah. Not unintelligent, poorly educated. And that would happen a lot with him. And he trusted me to be, you know, to ask the question. And you could then, you know, then expand it into filling the the, the space of knowledge that he found that he had because history is not my subject. But, so he you was know, hungry for information and, yeah, yes. just showed an, in, an intrigue and interest, yes. a thirst for knowledge. Yeah, it's a good. thirst for knowledge, which, you know, I've had a, a traditional education. I might think to ask, you know, was there a war before the Germans? Well, it's a stupid question. It's not a stupid question. It's an unusual way of asking the question. Mm. It's not a stupid question. There are no stupid questions. And I think that that's probably... So he was so he was my first, and I was employed by him. So he was my employer, and then he was my last employer because after that started the business. Because I met this person's, it had not occurred to me when I started cooking for him that he would have a nutritionist. Not occurred to me because why would it? I didn't know. I knew nothing. But then I realised he did, and I thought, oh, better go and see, better go, you know, find out what that's about. So I went and visited the nutritionist, and that was Mike Naylor. It was Mike Naylor who said, you're a performance chef. I went, am I? He went, yes. Okay, then. I didn't know. I didn't know until Mike told me. So there you go. And then I said to him, okay, so what should I be doing? I should because- just mention, because not everyone will know. So Mike Mike Naylor is uh, head of nutrition for the English Institute of Sport. Absolute legend in his own right. He'll probably grimace if he says that, but he's a, he's a proper guy, head of nutrition for 
for the last England World Cup, that sort of thing. He's, he knows his stuff. He knows his business. So we're not just talking about any old performance nutritionist. You connected yeah. there with a top bloke there. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, this is, you know, had I had a plan for my life, I, that that conversation probably would never have happened But because I don't have a plan. It's just, you know, I go and meet people, say hello, this is where I am, or, you know, what are you doing? How can I help you? La, la, la. And things happen because yeah. you're not, you haven't got this structure of like, I must be doing this and I must, you know, it's just like, what, what's happening? Let's. Yeah, what, it was a very organic process. Yeah, it's yeah. very interesting. There's some parity here to some of the conversations I've had with other practitioners. How did they arrive where they are as performance nutritionists? And I would include myself in that. I didn't start out trying to be a nutritionist or a performance nutritionist. That's just sort of the path. So anyway, you had this, this Premier League player, you met with a proper, fully not just a qualified, but a top-end performance nutritionist. Obviously, at that point, sparks started to fly a little bit, and presumably you you, you enjoyed the process. You found it, what, challenging but intriguing, and it opened up more doors and avenues, I'm assuming. Yes. Well, okay, here, in the interest of full disclosure, Mike said to me, no, he can eat what he likes. <laughs> well, that's true. It's important, isn't it? <laughs> we had that discussion and that was the answer because there are some I'm sure you've encountered this there are some individuals I think it happens more often with elite athletes than otherwise but how some individuals you could present them with like an entire buffet of everything possible in the entire universe and they will still pick out the right ratio of proteins to fats to carbs they just do it I don't know how they do it but that's just it's somehow pre-programmed into them of what feels right, what looks right, what's right. They just do that. And there are other people who just, you know, eat what they like. And if that's not a good, if that's not nutritionally sound to them, then there are consequences, like non-positive consequences for them. But some people, they, eat, they, they just choose magically the right combination and they... You know, they have great body compositions. They've also, and this is, uh, this is something that Mike Naylor said to me, they've won the genetic lottery. Oh, well, yes, of course, which is a big factor in certain yeah. sports, particularly like football genetics. And so anyway, we, we, could, we could talk about that for ages. I was also mentioned just being a nutritionist in similar scenarios where what you've said is slightly controversial to some people. And I would back it up and qualify. I've said that many times to a chef. And one reason why is because the athlete, the the, the, the player, for example, would, if, if they were left to their own devices, it'd be a combination of they eat what they like, but they would eat a very limited number of foods, which would be very easy to acquire or access, which wouldn't necessarily be ideal for their overall health they would still perform well combined with their genetics and so on. Frankly, yes, it isn't always that complicated. I'm sorry for everyone spending years and years learning about this stuff, but actually there are some basic characteristics about this that just means it is actually more important that they eat quality food, which is a reason for yourself, of course, because you will have upgraded that. Otherwise, they wouldn't have bothered. They would have just, just had packets of biscuits and, and pot noodles and, and whatnot. So, you know, what was the difference for the player then? I mean... They employed a nutritionist not because they would, or were they told to by the nutritionist, or was it a case of they had somehow interacted with somebody who you'd work with? Your name was obviously recommended at that point, and they thought, you know what, that's exactly what I need is somebody to help produce this food for me. 
That's a very, very good question. I'm not, I'm thinking back and I think it came through the player's agent. Yeah, that's a common way. Yeah. Yes. And that agent was someone who was only agent to that player. They had picked them up when they were very young and it was kind of a friend of a friend sort of a situation. That relationship broke down and the player went with a much better known agent whose name you would know, you know, one of the big international agents, which is not a one man band, you know, many large offices around the world. But that's how it that's how it came through to me. And it was because that player didn't want to cook he shared his house with a a school you know someone has been friends since school days and he was living slightly away from where he grew up and I think he was sort of rattling around in his you know plush apartment without and, and and missed in a way, missed. I'm just joining dots here. I'm not certain I'm joining the right mm. dots. Missed his mother's cooking. His mother was his mother, who I went on to know really quite well. He missed it, and, it, and the rest of his family as well. I think he'd been brought up into a house where there was someone cooking in the kitchen when you got home, and he he liked that idea. He had the funds to replicate that. Didn't want his mother doing it because you know he was a young man in his twenties behaving as young men in their 20s do and so maybe didn't want having mother there looking over his shoulder all the time I can fully understand all of that so you know let's buy it in well you know let's outsource this task which you know great and uh, that's that's how that started so so Rachel I I, it's the outsourcing bit that's so fascinating because some people will be listening going hang on so presumably a football player, and we're focusing on football players just for a minute because they're a good example of people who who tend, at least Premier League, at least tend to have the money for this. So, mm-hmm. yes, musicians, whatever, but we're talking specifically about performance nutrition. And there are, of course, some performing artists who I've worked with, for example, who had to approach their nutrition from a sport and exercise nutrition perspective because that was important for body composition and performance yeah. and the role for what they were filming or dancing or or whatever, which is something we can expand to in a minute. But what we forget as people mm. who watch musicians or sports people is they do an awful lot of traveling they and do. they they have to be on when they're on they've of got course. to be on they so there's can't... good reasons to outsource and that yeah. and i think that's an issue here is that it it will be the spectrum of can't cook won't cook scenario to haven't got time to cook and it's really a cost to benefit thing they're traveling a lot they're just busy 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 whatever and or mm-hmm. like you say they're at a certain stage of life and they don't necessarily want to be living at home and, mm-hmm. you know, for whatever reason. And although I've definitely forgotten what my 20s were like, you know, there are scenarios where you don't want to be at home, or at least you don't want parents Actually. from home in your home in those scenarios. Of course you don't. Yeah. But we are talking about the really rather fascinating situation where you've got these elite athletes and they do have certain requirements or demands from their food, even if it's just actually eating rather than not eating or at least eating proper food rather than junk food but also for the most part there will be a club that they go to there will be a nutritionist although as we've discussed on this podcast many times it's mind-boggling that still there aren't nutritionists at every club and or they're very part-time they don't have time to work with players one-on-one in fact that's frighteningly common which is Mm -hmm. why 
players will outsource not just for a private chef, but they'll also outsource for a nutritionist, which is a bit of a gray area. And I know that that can be a frustration for the club nutritionist. But the fact is, is that that, 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 that there's a demand there that needs to be satisfied one way or the other. And when you're a well-paid football player, you will get what you want one way or the other. So for you, you're being hired in for your professional expertise, your services. I think what will be interesting in this conversation is, you know, obviously we're we're moving away now from general population and specifically into, I guess, this area with football. I know you've worked, worked a lot with football players, whether it's through their agents or through club nutritionist or a private nutritionist. Your role as the private chef, though, it's a fascinating place in that team, the team behind the team or the team behind the player. Just tell us a little bit more about that aspect of, of your role. Well, that leads on to, you know, multiple avenues we can go mm. down. But in terms of what I should just say that it's not just me doing this. I train people to do it as well. So in my company, which is called Talk, Eat, Laugh. You know, that's the joy thing, the laugh part. You know, life should be fun. But also what we, the work we do with, with all of our private clients that we can't talk about is discreet and delicious. So for discreet and delicious, I am training chefs who work one-to-one with a client. But So it's not just me. There's an army of us. But what is is really important is this, you know, this also feedback feeds back into the Hell's Kitchen thing is that, you know, as chefs, when we put on our whites, I always initially downplay all of that. It's important for me to be in my whites because I've earned the right to wear the uniform and I wear it with a great deal of respect. And I'm a different person when I'm wearing my uniform. I'm not like Jacqueline Hyde, but I'm more, you know, I'm just like, okay, this is what we're going to do and da 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 da. But people think people in chef's jackets are going to be throwing knives, swearing. You know, the one clip I do know about Hell's Kitchen is when the chef who shall remain nameless has two pieces of bread and puts it either side of someone's head and says, calls them a stupid sandwich. Like that to me is a disrespect of my uniform that I earned the right to wear so if a policeman was doing that to a member of the public then all police would be like shocked and embarrassed of their uniform right there's someone's doing that on television that is like that's not that's not cool okay it's done for telly but and it's done to be you know to get ratings and so that people like me will know that that thing exists brilliant at that but that was done in a chef's uniform that's not okay. That's massively not okay. Not cool. Anyway, so, but I still wear my uniform because I'm proud of it. But when you go into someone's house, yeah, it's the very gentle, softly, softly. I don't know if you've ever fed a horse, but with a bit of <laughs> that you've had in your hand, you put the bit of grass in your hand and you wait for the horse to come up to give you a sniff see who you are, see if it knows you, and then goes, oh, you've got a bit of grass in your hand. Oh, yes, I'll eat that. So that's what it's like. It's literally you go in all gentle and let them come to you in case they think you're going to do the thing with two pieces of bread and call anybody a stupid sandwich it, because we're not doing that. So it, it's it's really about gaining people's trust and the magic, the absolute magic of being private performance chef is you build a relationship with the client 
and you build a relationship with the nutritionist. And sometimes it can be the relationship between the client and the nutritionist. And it's, a, it's, it's an equilateral triangle. So you've got the nutritionist in one corner, you've got the chef in another corner, and you've got the client in another corner of your equilateral triangle. And so you've got three lots of relationship going on as well. You brought and, some mathematics back into this. And you yes, know, of course. <laughs> of course, we like triangles. Triangles tell us a lot about the whole Let's, world. Tell us a bit more about that, though, because that is the trust. In, but you're, you're saying things that are very much mirroring the things that I talk about that are important about being a nutritionist, you know, is – it's quite an invasive thing telling somebody what to eat or what not to eat or or, or what to change. And therein lies some gray areas also that I feel are a weakness in some people in their practice because they might be in a club setting and they sort of put up infographics and hand out charts, but don't actually not just have that conversation or with a player individually, but get their trust buy into the point that they are either in reality invited into their home or kitchen or at least into their sort of their, their trusting circle at least yeah. to actually a, listen a, to them there's no other way of saying it it's inner sanctum isn't it it is an inner sanctum and it and it is a very difficult place to get into and like you say you you've actually got to work at that a bit yeah but either which way there is this sort of inner sanctum ecosystem of the player in this case a nutritionist and and the chef you know there are three stakeholders there so you're not you're not just cooking whatever you fancy although there that obviously is a scenario like you've said at the beginning i've certainly had that where initially just work with the chef initially mm-hmm. and then we'll take you to the next level once we've got you into eating actually real food for once and then we can yeah. tweak and, and perfect but obviously in the interest of time for the for the podcast i think what's going to be interesting there is the dynamics beyond you and the player at this point but between you and the nutritionist but still incorporates the wishes, desires of the player. And you and chances are you're closer to the player than the nutritionist is because you're literally there all the time. The nutritionist might come in every couple of weeks sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That's Absolutely. the bit I'm super fascinated by. Absolutely. So there's always a lot going on. And there's only some of that that I will tell you. Because of course. No, obviously. obviously yeah. but so, so it can be that the relationship between the nutritionist and the client is quite fractious because it has been a bit policey and a bit uh, body compy and a bit the the, the the caliper thing and a bit of the now, 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 we'll have none of that. It can have been like that. And then the nutritionist says, why don't you work with a chef, someone like Rachel or one of Rachel's team? And so then you're kind of tarnished with the now, now, now calipers, naughty boy thing. And so you have to be very softly, softly then and go, look, we're not the police. A, we're not going to do the stupid sandwich thing. And B, we're not the police. We're here. So who who is paying you? The client is paying you. So it's like we're here to help you. And so you can be the mediator in the relation, in all the relationships and the calming influence. So I would say there's one really major, major thing we do, and that is we listen to the clients. And you know clients from working with them, but you probably see much more of their public persona. You see them traveling. You see them playing. You see them after they've lost. You see them after they've won. You see, you see their public facets of their character. At home, you see much more of their private facets of their character. And they are literally almost unrecognizable. When I go and see the, play, when I go and see the clients play, I can tell a lot about how they're feeling, their moods, by how they walk across the pitch. 
I'm like, oh, he's in a bad mood. What's happened to him then? Because I know that's his bad mood walk from being in his house. That's his bad mood walk. Or, you know, just little things. Or that's his irritated gesture. Because he does that irritated gesture when he's at home. You can see those things still. But it's the facets that you present are obviously different in different environments. Anyway, so it doesn't mean to say that someone can be, you know, someone can win the Ballon d'Or and no one listens to them in the course of a week. Everyone's telling them what to do or saying you did a great job or can you sign this for me or I want a selfie or I'll sell you a car or I'll give you this. or doesn't mean to say anyone has listened to them all day, all week. Just we, you know, we go and we ask the player, what would you like for your dinner? And we tell them, oh, nutritionist says high carb today, low carb today. It's got to be really low fat today. It's going to be very high protein today, whatever combination of whatever it is that the nutritionist has asked for. And we listen to the player, we listen to the client, and they tell us what they would like. We write it down. We listen. If if they say something and it's not clear, we ask for clarification. And then we show that we've listened because it arrives on a plate in front of them. And that is such a bond of trust such a bond of trust and you know if they it's it's really important when they say if they say peas but not the little ones they're saying not petit pois okay it's not like oh well you you know you have to use the proper language no you're communicating that's great peas not the little ones so we give them peas not the little ones I will write, I will tell all my chefs, write down what they say. If they specify a certain thing, you write that down. Strawberries not with the white ends, okay? Strawberries not with the white ends. That's important. They've gone to the bother of specifying it. It's important. And then the other thing I would say, the magic is that I used to say that what we do is take the food, take the nutritional guidance off the page and put it on the plate. Then I realized. That's not it at all. That's the first step. What we do is we take it off the page and we get it the other side of their taste buds because your mouth is a Rubicon. You've got to get it past that and your eyes as well in some sort of cultural stuff you've got going on in your head, which are all valid reasons for eating or not eating or liking or disliking food. Not arguing with that. But we need to get what the nutritionist has asked for across the other side of their taste buds and into their body. Because your taste buds are like what percentage of your body? Like 0.001% of your body? Yeah, I don't know that fact, actually. Well, you know, but it's mini, mini, minuscule. And yet your taste buds make quite a lot of your decisions, don't they? Mm, They help, for sure, yeah. Yeah. And what's important, actually, is the body that you feed behind the taste buds. But you've got to get it through that letterbox down the other side of the t- of the taste buds that's what we really do Rachel what I like about this aspect of the conversation is the humanizing of the client in my, I, I imagine listeners are like myself thinking about this and you're sort of either putting yourself into this context or at least in your mind's eye you've got your player he's come home he closes the door and it's sort of he's at home in his tracksuit whatever or her tracksuit and they've gone from being a player to I've just come home from work and it's been a good day. It's been a shitty day, whatever you, you got a human being. And I, and I talk about this a lot with people on this podcast a lot, which is why I'm so obsessed with being mindful that we just don't throw science, sports, nutrition, science, biochemistry directly 
into our strategies and recommendations in as far as how we present that to our players, our clients and whatnot, because it is completely ignores the human aspect of this and the applied, the practical component of this, but more importantly, the importance of the needs and preferences of the individual, which frankly aren't listened to. Or what happens, like you say, is recommendations are given in the form of a meal plan, a nutrition plan. You mustn't eat this. It's a low carb day or, you you know, you've got to do this. But the reality is the player needs to eat something and they need to want to eat, be motivated to eat and to continue to take that advice and recommendation. And to have pleasure in food. Pleasure. Exactly. If, if you think food is a punishment and you have to eat this and if you eat this, then it makes you run faster yeah. and stronger or give you be good for your immunity but you hate it then that's like how is that good it, uh, then you've 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 fueled yeah. the thing behind the taste buds but the taste buds you know they connected to your brain they're the thing that light you up well particularly in my case less so in normal people's cases but even so you need to have the pleasure in eating otherwise it seems like it's a task yeah no absolutely and you know i it's interesting you said what you said being in their kitchen and experiencing that almost like the parent <laughs> sitting there um, but without the emotional buy-in but the- I, I mean I'm happy always you know I am always trying to so I know a lot about nutrition I would not call myself a nutritionist that's not my job my job is to work with the nutritionist it's like a relay race hmm. the nutritionist hands the baton to me and I run yeah, take it from there yeah, And then I hand it back to the nutritionist because they do yeah. all the body pumps again afterwards and then run with it and they hand it to me and I hand it to them and they hand it to me. And, I and you know, it's... No, it's a great I analogy. Yeah. I don't need to be the nutritionist. No. I need to listen and understand what to what the nutritionist says to me. Yes. And I need to make that into living, exciting food that the client will enjoy, enjoy eating and once you start to get that relationship with the client it's just like it it lights them up they love it we had very recently a client who was I don't know how quite you'd phrase it in nutritionist words but in like ordinary everyday words he was on the naughty step he'd been on the naughty step for a while and the relationship with the nutritionist was fractious that's how I inherited it. And it was like, why don't you talk to Rachel? So they were like, oh, I really don't think so. Oh, 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 oh. But eventually the resistance got broken down and they said, okay, we'll give it a go. So it's okay. We'll give it a go. We'll just be very gentle. We'll be, you know, like holding the grass out for the horse. Wait for the horse to come and eat the grass. Give the, give you a smell and see if they want to have anything to do with anything you've got in your hand. Okay, the, the horse starts eating. Yeah, so it was very gentle approach. And then after a couple of weeks, the client said, I'd like a pie. All hell broke loose. You're not having a pie, was what the nutritionist said. I was like, okay, okay, all right. So had a little quiet word with the nutritionist. I said, now, how about a fake pie? We get some stew which we've got some stealth vegetables hidden in. And that was the lovely Graham Close who taught me the concept of the stealth vegetable. So got the stealth vegetables in the stew and then make a little tiny disc of pastry, cook it off separately and then plonk it on top of the stew. So it's like like the size of it, like a digestive biscuit of pastry, just a little disc of pastry. And I said, how about I do that? And we call that a fake pie. How about we try that? And nutritionist was like, okay. So we did that and 
everyone is so abundantly happy. Everyone's like skipping about with happiness. There we go, job done. And it's great because it's an adaptation, isn't it? It's a solution to a, a problem through the eyes of somebody who who wants to make it palatable to the eye, to the nose, to the mouth, to the brain, and so on. And I, yeah, I I, I love all that. The creativity is there within within the sort of more scientific side of, of sports nutrition or nutrition. It's a very rigid sort of area. And I think that's the issue. I think that's something that comes out of this conversation is the fact that yeah, it's it about, isn't going to be that it's simple. Possible. But as it's Mike says, you know, it's not necessarily important to be quite, per, you know, you don't need to be a perfectionist from the sort of the grams or, or whatever perspective, the ratios. But what is important is the player actually eats it, likes it, enjoys it, and wants more of it. And then actually that gives you a vehicle to improve and tweak in time, doesn't it? Just the passing the baton yes. back and back. And I think that's what's important, particularly if you're a listener and you're thinking about working, if you're a nutritionist and you're looking to work with a chef or or you're working with a client and maybe, you, maybe you're going to step back and think, actually, how is this advice coming across? Maybe it is a bit too policey. You know, you're on the naughty step. And you just need to step back a bit and then maybe put yourself in their eyes through the lens of of the recipient, which can be very difficult if you've not been in those shoes before. You know, a lot of us are, are into nutritional science or whatnot. We have a certain background or a certain upbringing or whatever. It is sometimes difficult to put yourself in the shoes of the person that, that you're working with, but certainly making an effort to do so would, would mm. certainly help. I certainly found that when in tournament football, because unlike club football, where the nutritionist comes in to work and goes home mm. at the end of the day, often just for a day a week, maybe two days a week, rarely, but obviously some clubs do a full-time nutritionist and it's growing. In tournament football, in my case, I'd live with them for weeks to months, particularly in World Cup years. I'm literally living with them and I sit next to them and I see the things that you've just described, which made a big difference to me and how I approach this stuff. So, but look, Rachel, look, we can't, my idea here was to sort of, you know, it's you and me having a cup of coffee, so to speak, a fancy one in the kitchen, just talking about what it's like. And we could talk for hours and weeks. And to be honest, we'd have to be a fly on the wall just to observe the thousands, millions of different scenarios you're going to find yourself in. But it's absolutely fascinating to, to get this glimpse of, of your journey to be a, a private performance chef, but also some of those gems that you've come up with. But just to sort of finish up here, from your perspective, from your experience, of course, everyone's going to be different and it will depend on the player, the nutritionist, the club, the chef, the, the dynamics, the circumstances, the context, my favorite word. It's all going to vary. But from your perspectives to where you are now, what, what are some of the main areas that you think support the need for having a private chef. And and also the second part of that is much of what you've just said, really, just, just a couple of key points that you think are important for, for nutritionists or clubs or whatever to bear in mind, you know, as it relates to working with a private chef. I would say, well, everyone's an individual. You have to start from that point and not make any assumptions about anything and to see what how people present to you, what they give you, what parts of their life and parts of their information, their brains, they're going to interact with, how they're going to interact with you. Some nutritionists that I have worked with will write you recipes, will write you like meal plans. And I I would prefer not to deal with that because I think that is, I mean, if you're going to do that, then the nutritionist can be the chef, right? 
I've got my talents about making food look and taste amazing and being reactive. We worked with one chef or one nutritionist who was based in the south of France. And I was cooking for one of her clients who was French, who was in the British Midlands. And in the middle of January, she suggested a tomato salad. There was snow on the ground. She was in Marseille. No snow on the ground for her. It's just like, you know, darling, have some empathy. Like, imagine what we're dealing with here. This is, imagine, also imagine the tomatoes I'm dealing with. Can we not? Can we, I mean, I have the magic. I know how to make any tomato taste at least halfway decent. But could we have tomato soup instead? And because the client was French, they were like, no, 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 we've got to follow these instructions exactly. I'm like, a tomato soup and a tomato salad, that's one's just a one's a more appropriate version of the other, nutritionally. Let's do the soup. No, 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 we're having salad. Okay, we'll have salad. Snow on the ground, tomato salad. Okay. So I think it's better if nutritionists trust the chef to do the chef work and the chef trusts the nutritionist to do the nutrition work. It's a great team. It's like an architect and a master builder. And the information is not just one way. It's backwards and forwards all the time. Like, you know, you you set out to, the architect sets out the plans like this. The builder encounters a problem straight on the phone to the architect. Yeah, I can see your drawing. I don't like it, but actually this has happened. You know, what's your suggestion? It's a, it's a, it's a really close really fluid relationship, bouncing ideas off each other, learning from each other all the time. And the boundary does kind of move backwards and forwards a bit, but that's good. I always trust the nutritionist to do the nutritionist job. We work with lots of different nutritionists. Everyone treats us differently, but that's great because we can interact in a different way and learn from everybody but then I never put my, I never stamp my big foot and say, oh, it must be like this. You know, that nutritionally, I think you're incorrect. It's not my place to say that. It's just not my place to say that. We all bring our talents to the team for the benefit of the whole team. And as you say, we are the team behind the team. We are there supporting and really, like, you know, valuing people as individuals and helping them be the best person they can be to bring that to the team that they're part of we're all like different parts of different circles of teams and it's a really wonderful thing once the once the client especially if it's a client who has been on the naughty step begins to trust you and begins to enjoy food and begin to realize that they can have what they want but we might have messed about with the ratio of the proteins to the fats the carbs you want a pie I'll give you a pie and it will be okay with the nutritionist and we'll take a photo of it just to show him or her what we're doing and how we're doing it. That's, you know, that's a magical moment when the client realises it's not a fight. It's not a fight. There doesn't need any sneaking of anything past anybody. We can, you can eat all the food, all the, the your favourite food, but we will have messed about with it slightly so that you're, you're ticking your mental boxes of this is all my favorite stuff, but the nutritionist is happy as well. And you'll start to feel better in yourself and perform better. No, it's great. I, I think it's I think it's appropriate that we have the food police. We have an informant, <laughs> various other things. And that is completely the wrong environment. And I've seen that for sure. I've, 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 I have, without mentioning names, I, I, I know 
I've spoke to a performance chef who was working with a player that I was working with once who initially was like, look, I don't mean to be rude. I don't know you, but I've had such bad experiences with nutritionists who've treated me like an idiot. I really just don't think I want to talk to you. Unfortunately, we ended up working quite well together. But I think I think just having that that respect for the player and the people that are involved as their stakeholders, whether it's the chef or their personal doctor or personal physio or the team physio or whatever we i think yeah I, I i that's why i like having these conversations because it's from the other side we're all in it for the same reason right we're all there but we do need to learn how to work together and part of that will happen by being aware of each other's perspectives and ideas and and thoughts yeah. and i think for a lot of people to be fair they just hadn't realized didn't think about this stuff didn't know and of course different Different people will have different experiences, but it's been invaluable, Rachel, to learn from you today, talk to you. I'm super interested in what you do and and excuse me and, and how you do it. And it's been it's been very kind of you to give up your time. I know as a chef it's can be crazy days, even in private chef world. But I wish you the best of luck with with everything that you're doing. And yeah, thank you so much for today. Well, thank you very much for asking me to talk. It's always a pleasure. I feel that I'm here to share as much knowledge as I have. I don't think knowledge belongs to me. Knowledge is a communal resource. If there's knowledge that happens to reside in my head and in no one else's head, then I'm more than happy to to share that. Knowledge is for, if I say for the good of mankind, that sounds very sanctimonious, but it isn't, I don't want to keep what I know locked up in my head. It's for everybody. It's apt. It's not dramatic. It's true. Thank you. I'll, I'll I'll put links to your websites and various other things so people can contact you and look you up and so on. I highly recommend. I know you have a great reputation in the professional performance nutrition field, having interacted with a few people that have worked with you without telling you that I have, and you've always come up very highly recommended. Hence, we're having this conversation. So Yes, but also, you know, I'm quite memorable. I'm a girl in sport. We I know. That's becoming less rare, but it used to be when we went to visit training grounds, people would come out of their offices and look at us yeah. like, girls? What's what? that? They wouldn't be <laughs> rude enough to go, what are you doing here? Who let you in? But you could see them thinking, there are some girls in the corridor. But what know. are they doing? <laughs> I know. I know. Well, I think that's the perfect way to end this conversation. <laughs> what's, this, what's, this girl, what's this girl doing on this podcast? Anyway, <laughs> thank you, Rachel. It's been a pleasure. You take yes. care. And you. Take care. Thank you very much. Bye.